Okay, hi, welcome back to episode 62 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Um, today I am very excited um, because this is a, a, a very special topic for a number of reasons, one of which is because it involves um, a member of my team at Guru Performance, Scott Robinson, um, and his uh, colleague, strict supervisor, uh, Gareth Wallace. I'll let them introduce themselves to you um, in a second, but also um, the sort of the subject area that we're going to get into today, I think, is a really is a really big one, but a really misunderstood one, which will be around the um, sort of the area of uh, fat oxidation, uh, primarily as it relates to um, rates of fat oxidation during exercise, or, or the relevance of fat oxidation during exercise, and how that might actually associate to um, 24-hour fat oxidation and, and uh, various factors that we will associate with that, which I'll get into in a minute. Um, but I do need to uh, just thank the, uh, the sponsors of this podcast, which is uh, Healthspan Elite. Um, and I'll give you more details about um, them at the end of this uh, podcast. So anyway, um, welcome, Scott, and welcome, Gareth. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Hi, guys. So I know... Um, I know uh, some people who've listened to this podcast and or those that are familiar with uh, Guru Performance will know Scott Robinson well, but Scott, do you want to just quickly remind us or, or tell the newbies to this podcast uh, who you are and uh, uh, what it is you're currently doing? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, currently a PhD student uh, working uh, under Gareth um, at the University of Birmingham. Uh, so I'm just in my final year at the moment, actually final uh, few months. Uh, so my research is really looking into uh, the significance uh, of the variation in, in fat oxidation during exercise uh, in the context uh, of metabolic health. Um, then also, obviously, uh, as you mentioned, I work uh, with you uh, part-time, um, working in the Guru Performance Lab, where we work with various athletes and, and different clients, um, and really try and put that um, theory uh, into practice. Awesome. I can't believe you said top context before I did, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> you usurped me. Um, so, yes, and uh, Gareth, if you could please tell us uh, who you are and, um, and what you're up to. Sure, yeah. So I'm uh, Gareth Wallace. I'm a lecturer in sport and health nutrition in the School of Sport, Exercise and Rehabilitation Sciences, the University of Birmingham. Um, I, as well as uh, lecturing, I'm a researcher and my main interest is in understanding how exercise and nutrition can influence the metabolic factors linked with either the maintenance of, of good health uh, and also in the optimization of, of exercise performance. Excellent. Uh, you know, I, <clears throat> I've been excited about doing this podcast with you guys for, for a number of reasons, but one of which is... Um, quite lately, there's been a lot more interest. Um, I'm not going to say all of a sudden, um, but it, it, it sort of seems like it's 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 really starting to become quite vogue to talk about things like fat oxidation and fat burning. Uh, we hear terms like metabolic efficiency, uh, or perhaps more appropriately, metabolic flexibility. Um, on this um, podcast, I, I've been really lucky to have all kinds of practitioners and researchers in 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 these sorts of fields uh, where we've talked about mechanistic stuff we've talked about applied stuff uh, we've talked about um, a fair amount of myths and and and, and so on but 
I guess one of the biggest problems with this whole area of, of fat burning or fat oxidation is is a misunderstanding of what's actually being discussed. And, and the reason why I'm saying that is because there is a difference between what we are referring to as fat oxidation or fat burning and or the actual loss of body fat. Um, so I, I guess there's a, a way of laying the foundations for what we're going to get into and, and I'd like to refer the um, the listeners to your paper, your excellent paper that just came out in the Journal of Applied Physiology, which is open access, uh, which is wonderful, um, title of which is Maximal Fat Oxidation During Exercise is Positively Associated with 24-Hour Fat Oxidation and Insulin Sensitivity in Young Healthy Men. Um, and um, Scott obviously is the uh, lead author because I know this is uh, one of your PhD papers. Um, We'll, we'll get into some red herrings, I'm sure, and we'll go off in different tangents here. But if, if perhaps I could ask both of you to um, sort of give us, give us sort of the foundations as to why it is that, that we need to be um, looking into fat oxidation, particularly as it relates to things like health and, and exercise. And, and obviously we'll delve into this deeper in different areas, but it'd be good to discuss why, I mean, why fat burning, you know, why are we doing research on this? Yeah, I mean, I'll start maybe with that. Mm. Um, I mean, I think if we think about um, body fat mass, um, then that's really determined from fat balance um, on, a, on a day-to-day basis and, and your fat balance is really a function of your fat intake so from the diet um, and the amount of fat that you burn as a fuel or oxidize um, and so I think you know we're, we're interested in in fat oxidation uh, from the perspective of how can we improve or um, enhance fat oxidation to try and uh, create a negative fat balance, um, which may help with the uh, reduction of body fat mass, or or even the maintenance of, of body fat mass in the context of you know overnutrition or eating uh, uh, high fat diets, for example. So I think you know if we think about it from a body composition perspective, um, that's where the the fat oxidation side of things things come come in uh, from a health side of things. Sure. Sure. Uh, look, I, I think, you see, this is where people are going to start getting the knickers in the twist, you see. Um, <clears throat> it is, when we start talking about this stuff, sometimes uh, we or, or the listener is not paying attention to um, what I often refer to as context. Uh, but, you know, we, we don't define some of these things. When we talk about weight loss or energy deficits or fat balance or, or so on, um, you know, sometimes we need to bear in mind that there are some bigger issues at hand sometimes. Um, and, you know, which, which is the chicken or the egg or which is, which is a marginal issue? Uh, for example, um, and I, I would love to know what you feel about this, but when we talk about improving fat oxidation um, and improving um, fat balance, what, you know, in terms of the sort of chicken or the egg type scenario, what about just calories? What, you know, because people are going to go, oh, but it's just calories. Calories are the most important thing here. Yeah, I mean, um, calories are important. Um, you know, uh, I think if you think about 
sort of energy balance, um, then you know we know that it's um, more likely that if you're in negative energy balance, then you're likely to be oxidizing more fat and more likely to be able to create a um, uh, a negative fat balance as well. So it is difficult to um, dissociate the two, and I think you know probably one of the points maybe you're trying to bring out here is that actually um, maybe it isn't right to try and uh, se separate energy balance and, and fat balance. And I think they are to some extent uh, in, in intrinsically linked. Um, so there, there can be um, confusion. Um, and I guess the, the easiest way to think about this is to um, you know, maybe not try and isolate uh, energy balance and, and fat balance, but always uh, consider both factors. So when you're thinking about fat balance, well, what's the energy status of the individual that you're talking about? Um, and equally, if you're thinking about energy balance, well, what's the macronutrient balance of that individual as well? Yeah, I'm really pleased you said that. that that's exactly where I was thinking. I know Scott definitely thinks that way. And I, I like to think of it in terms of it, it's sort of quantity and quality. And if you imagine the cue of quantity is is a wheel on a bicycle and quality that cue is another wheel on the bicycle you, you need both it doesn't matter whether one's in front or behind of the other the fact is you both you need both of them in order for the vehicle to move in the appropriate direction and, and i guess that's kind of where we're going with this is is everyone's like oh it's just calories ah but it also matters um you know what, what where the energy is coming from and and i guess this is this is something that your study has been able to, to show. And I, I want to come back to that topic because it's something that people really struggle to get their heads around. Uh, and I know there's terms like uh, energy partitioning and, nu and nu nutrient partitioning, which uh, or macronutrient partitioning, which plays a role here. But Scott, let, let's just dive back into the study that you've done so that we can use this as a, a sort of a background to where we're going to go with this. I mean, w w you know, how did this study come about, first of all? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, it's probably best to uh, describe uh, what happens in terms of fuel use uh, during exercise. Um, so usually uh, during exercise, we, we burn or we oxidize a, a combination of, of carbohydrate and fat. Uh, and the relative uh, contribution of each uh, depends upon usually on the exercise intensity. So as exercise intensity increases uh, from low through high, uh, there's typically a rise in the relative contribution of carbohydrates uh, and a decline in the contribution of fat to energy expenditure. What we also know is that the absolute rate of fat oxidation shows an inverted hyperbola, so it's similar to an, an inverted U. So that is that it increases with exercise intensity up until a maximal point, uh, and then it decreases to eventually become negligible at, at higher exercise intensities, typically around about 80 to 85% of somebody's uh, VO2 max. But if we think about the, the inverted U, uh, and we think about that peak, that peak's actually referred to uh, as the maximal, or commonly referred to uh, as the maximal rate of fat oxidation uh, during exercise. And that could be regarded as, as a useful marker of somebody's capacity to oxidize fat during exercise. Um, there is some evidence uh, that's actually come out in the past uh, five to six years, which suggests that this MFO, so this marker of one's capacity to oxidize fat during exercise, 
uh, could have important implications uh, in terms of metabolic health. Um, so there's a couple of studies, one of which uh, is performed by a group uh, uh, led by uh, Rosenkild uh, in 2010. And what they found was that those with a lower MFO uh, during exercise actually uh, exhibited a higher clustering uh, of metabolic syndrome risk factors uh, when compared to those with a, a higher MFO. Uh, and then more recently, uh, so sorry, that was in a group of overweight uh, young men, uh, whereas more recently in a group of normal weight women, um, a lower MFO is associated uh, with a, a more unfavorable body fat mass distribution, um, which is associated with conditions such as insulin resistance and dyslipidemia. So there's, there's emerging evidence to say that this, this capacity uh, to oxidize fat during exercise, the MFO, could have important implications uh, for metabolic health. So as well as that, we also know uh, that um, an elevated 24-hour respiratory quotient, um, which is uh, indica indicative of a low uh, daily uh, whole body fat oxidation, has been shown to predict uh, weight gain, uh, but also body fat mass regain after diet-induced weight loss. So again, there's implications there that say that if somebody's, um, say, particularly poor at burning fat during, ex uh, sorry, um, over 24 hours, then they may be more susceptible to weight gain uh, and body fat mass regain after, after, say, a period of weight loss. So then there's no real research that shows uh, links between MFO and 24-hour fat oxidation, although they both seem to be linked with, with adverse uh, health conditions um, if people are particularly or low uh, fat burners during exercise or over 24 hours. And that's really where we thought we'd come in and, and we'd... Um, we try and associate the two, so that would be the MFO uh, and the 24-hour fat oxidation. So, yeah, no, thanks for that. So, you know, one thing that strikes me is, um, as, a, as a practitioner who uh, very, very luckily, um, as you know, uh, you know, I've got my own metabolic testing kit that I use with my, with my clients, and the one thing that really stands out is this business that um, not everyone's the same, um, and the degree of into individual variability is, is, is huge. In fact, so huge, I, I find it surprising at times. Um, you know, when you are originally studying this stuff, uh, most of us can remember the, you know, the Brooks and Mercer um, uh, crossover concept where we're all told that um, there's a pretty uniform relationship between um, fat and carbohydrate oxidation at low intensities, where, whereby you've got you know low, very low levels of, of fat, uh, sorry, very high levels of fat oxidation, um, and low levels of carbohydrate oxidation. And as the intensity increases, um, it, you know there's a crossover effect that occurs, where obviously uh, the fuel types are being switched. Um, and it's not until you start to understand that. Um, the way that this stuff comes together, of course, is the scientists do their studies. Um, there's lots of different results that come out of those studies and um, they basically will identify means or averages of these things and that kind of gives us nice tidy little graphs and charts um, to look at. So if, if we can accept that there is, uh, I, I mean, it's still going to be basically um, a common theme amongst people. It will be higher levels of, of fat and carbohydrates at lower intensity um, and you're still going to get that crossover although the crossover will occur at different levels and the relative contributions of these fuels will be influenced by many different factors which maybe you could 
explain to us in a minute, but could you maybe just tell us why it is, you know, why it is important to consider this, this concept of inter-individual variability, particularly with this sort of stuff? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's a good, a good question. I think, um, you know, if you have a better understanding of um, individual variability and also the factors that influence that individual variability, um, then you can start to potentially identify well, what things are associated maybe with a higher capacity to uh, use fat during exercise um, and therefore what sort of interventions might be useful to try and increase one's capacity to use fat as a fuel um, if we think that that is um, uh, a useful approach to take, be it for health or performance reasons. Sure. Sure. Uh, so I want to come back to that because I think it's it's very interesting. And I think that particularly, again, as a practitioner, I, I tend to deal with individuals, even if I'm dealing with team sports, I've still got a team full of individuals. Or um, when we're looking at the sort of the greater society that we exist in, where this sort of work plays very valuable roles in, in sort of in, in sort of healthcare approaches and interventions to support health and longevity and so on. There's this idea, though, that there is a great deal of individual individuality out there. So, what what are going to be the primary factors that might influence a person's um, ability to oxidize uh, fats? Um, yeah. Okay. So there's. Um there's been some nice research on this by uh, by a couple of research groups, um, and just ready to touch upon the scale of the of the apparent uh, individual variability in MFO. Um, so there's a paper by uh, Michelle Venables uh, and colleagues in 2005, uh, and they basically had a large cohort, a heterogeneous cohort um, of 300 uh, healthy. Uh, men and women, and they, they asked them to perform uh, a graded exercise test of exhaustion uh, on a treadmill uh, in order to determine their uh, MFO, so their maximal rate of fat oxidation during exercise. And what they found is in, in this group of, of healthy men and women, there, there was in fact a large inter-individual variability in MFO, and I think the range was approximately 0.18 grams per minute to 1.01 uh, grams per minute, which, which indicates really about five-fold differences. Uh, between individuals uh, in 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 that particular study, and, and similar has been seen elsewhere, um, even within homogeneous group of homogeneous groups of individuals too. Um, in that study by Venables, they they sought to uh, establish the, the determinants of this variation, uh, and they looked at various factors that could be influential. Uh, and in this study, they actually found that uh, aspects such as VO2 max was a primary driver of MFO. So that was positively associated with MFO. So typically a higher VO2 max uh, would, would align with a higher MFO. Um, Self-reported daily physical activity levels uh, was also important too, uh, but also um, lean body mass, so fat-free mass uh, was particularly important also. Um, so it seems that those three um, aspects are very important, but also um, sex seems to have uh, an important influence too. Um, so they had healthy men and women. I think it was uh, around about 150 each, so it was reasonably evenly, evenly matched 
um, and they found that women tend to oxidize uh, larger amounts of fat across a range of different exercise intensities compared to men. Okay, so one of the one of the things that I see that you're presenting here is uh, something I find particularly fascinating, which for some people I think is going to throw a bit of a spanner in the works, is it, it, as to the relevance of this. And, and you know, and the reason why I'm saying this is because a lot of people are going to say, look, when you're exercising, the only thing that really matters is just carb up. Um, because the most important thing is, is that you get a maximal uh, performance out of that training so that you get all the appropriate adaptations, whether it's burning maximum amount of calories or you know maximal strength and adaptations from the training, all of which there are positive you know associations with, um, with having that with, with carbohydrate in the system. However, um, as I've mentioned many a time on this, on this podcast is a lot of these things are very context specific we have to ask ourselves what it is we're actually trying to achieve um, whether or not we're trying to periodize this into a, a training plan and or what is the ultimate objective of this intervention this diet this training or whatever and if if it is body composition and or metabolic health which we'll get into in a second you know maybe we need to be a bit more creative um, about what we do and how we do this and, and you've thrown in there something that I thought was very interesting is this business that that um, m you know uh, oxygen consumption or, or peak VO2 or maximal VO2 consumption does seem to have uh, an influence on this situation and um, in your study your hypothesis is that the capacity of fat oxidation during exercise is related to daily fat oxidation and um, insulin sensitivity as markers for metabolic, uh, long-term metabolic health. Now, it's obviously important that whether you're just a regular person or an athlete, the most important thing is your health. And there could be some interesting ramifications for having our interventions that are also primarily looking at health, where health is a sort of a foundational factor to what truly allows us to endure the training stresses that we might put our athletes through as, 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 uh, as coaches um, and or um, how much um, training or, or life stress or whatever uh, regular people can go through. But people don't ever talk about that when they're talking about um, uh, fat burning exercises or uh, rate, rates of fat oxidation because they invariably never talk about this this, this this idea of 24-hour fat oxidation, um, which you guys have, have done an excellent job of in, in this paper. So um, there's a couple of different areas there, and I'll hopefully bring us back to some of them. But what, I mean, why 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 is it important to relate this to 24-hour fat oxidation as opposed to just what's happening during the exercise bout itself? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I think probably both are important. You know, what's happening during the exercise bout itself and also the, the daily basis. I mean, if you think about um, regulation of uh, the body weight or body composition, um, you know, it doesn't really happen on a, an instantaneous basis. Um, and it's really a, a longer term uh, adaptation. And I think we use a 24 hour um, measurement period and others use, use longer to give us a, just a bit of a window or an insight into 
um, the potential effects of interventions on longer term uh, outcomes. Um, and so I think that's where some of the strengths of the the 24 hour measurement uh, comes in really. It, it's probably more reflective of um, long term outcome. And, and of course, the, the data that Scott referred to um, previously showing links between 24 hour RQ and long term body mass gain is is evidence that that's it's probably a, a useful way to look at things. Um, and I think it's important to think about fat oxidation during a physical activity or a bout of exercise itself as well, because, um, you know, our data is, is sort of implying is that that can be an important contributor to the 24-hour um, measurement. And therefore, it could be a, a, a way of trying to impact on 24-hour measurements and, and therefore long-term outcomes. Yeah, I mean, and the reason why I'm raising this is because, you know, this idea has, as I said, has started to gain a bit more popularity, the, the concept of um, whether it's training or dietary or both interventions to improve fat oxidation. And some people will throw up, you know, the question of, well, why is that even important? You know, just because you're burning more fat um, in your training session um you know th th there's every chance that you're just going to eat it all back uh for the rest of the day you know so what is the what you know what what, what is the importance of of that within a single exercise but i guess what i'm saying is what is the relevance um of this say to i guess the key areas that you've that you've pointed out here is is body composition health and performance and I guess we could tackle each of them uh, a little bit but I like the, I like the way that you're doing this from a 24-hour perspective um, but as I said people will throw into that argument that well they'll show look yeah you know people have shown that this intervention increases fat burning but it doesn't seem to make a difference um, over the weeks to their actual body composition so what, what what is it that we need to be focusing on here yeah I mean I, I think um the, you know, the, the link between the substrate use during about and 24-hour fat oxidation is interesting. And, and, you know, that's one of the key messages that we think there is a link there. But I think even in the absence of a maybe a change in body composition long term, uh, from a metabolic health perspective, um, if you are utilizing more um, lipid or fat as a fuel and particularly if that uh, is coming from the use of intramuscular triglyceride stores um, then um, we know that the intramuscular triglyceride stores um, or, or metabolites associated with accumulation of muscle fat uh, are associated with uh, impairments in insulin resistance so if we can start to utilize that as a fuel source more um, and this is one of the points we sort of allude to in the, in the paper that um, we could actually keep the level of lipotoxic stress in muscle um, so the fat induced stress in muscle lower and that may help to alleviate uh, some resistance to insulin and improve insulin sensitivity um, and our 
you know, albeit correlative data suggests that, you know, that may also be one of the benefits of being able to use fat as a fuel during exercise in the context of the, the maintenance of, of insulin sensitivity. Yes, and I, I'm pleased you mentioned intramuscular triglycerides because, again, and I, I know that it's not possible for everyone to have the in-depth knowledge of the sort of biochemistry and overall physiology and, and overall mechanisms behind this. But when we talk about fat burning, we just think it's just fat, body fat. But of course, there is a difference here between where the fuel's coming from um, acutely, i.e. fat supplies within the muscles, triglycerides, and ultimately where we're trying to have this fat burning um, 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 affect the overall fat balance of the body which which is really uh, to, to assume would be um, adipose body fat I mean so you've mentioned insulin sensitivity which again is a, a really popular area as being a, a cause um, rightly or wrongly of, of obesity I mean <coughs> with this relationship between intramuscular um, fats, adipose fats, and and insulin. You know where where is where is this? Um, you know where where is the influence of this particular focus? Um, I'll I'll try. I, I think uh, maybe you can just repeat that question so we can. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sorry. Yeah. I'm, I, so what I mean is because. You know, we're talking about stuff that we have a good idea about what we're talking about. When we talk about fat oxidation, we we know that we're talking about you know where the fat ultimately being burnt, i.e., intramuscular yep. um, sources of, of fuel from fats, the triglycerides. But when when generally when people in the general public, whether it's the lay press, members of the public, we talk about fat burning, they're assuming that what we're doing is burning body fat, which of course is not the same thing. The adipose body fat and the intramuscular fat fuel is not the same thing, which is why I, I prefer this idea of relating this to a 24-hour fat balance because there are other things going on where, yeah, you might be taking fat fuel, if you like, to keep things lovely and basic from the muscles, but you're eating food throughout the day, some of which might be fat, but other... Um, other substances might be fuels or food food types that can be turned back into either um, adipose fat supplies or intramuscular fat stores. So I think it might warrant a, just a quick discussion of that um, um, and what the relevance of, of those types of fat are to this overall story of, of um, fat burning and fat loss. Yeah, I mean, I think you you probably answered some of it yourself really yeah. but um you know when we often think about when we think about body composition um you know we're really thinking about um you know subcutaneous uh, adipose tissue and, and visceral adipose tissue um um and um you know when we're talking about this sort of i guess 24 hour fat oxidation and the relevance of that i think we're more we're more in that space um, yeah. Whereas when we're talking about um, exercise and fat oxidation, I, I think it's both actually. So you're likely to be mobilizing and utilizing uh, fat from fat stores in adipose tissue and, and so subcutaneous and, and visceral, but also utilizing the intramuscular store. Um, 
but I, I would tend to think that the intramuscular store of lipid is is more related to the um, and, and the turnover of that store is 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 more related to the insulin sensitivity side of things rather than the um, the kind of overall body composition because um, the relative size of those stores is quite different between you know what's in the muscle versus your whole body uh, fat um, uh, mass, yeah. whereas the fat oxidation on a daily basis. Um, is likely to be more related to your overall body composition, albeit there'll be a component of that 24-hour fat oxidation that was a result of the use of intramuscular triglycerides during physical activity. Sure. So, I mean, that's a great segue to this next topic that I really wanted to get into, which is this business of insulin sensitivity. Um, I mean, if anyone has been living under a rock potentially they won't know what we're talking about but of course insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance has become a a real sort of uh, top-end contender for the cause of obesity and metabolic disease and various other things that's out there and um, I mean I would argue that some of that is a little bit um, um, misplaced because we do need to bear in mind are we talking about active people or inactive people um, the the, the, the sort of the, the 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 therapeutic benefits of exercise, as you've demonstrated quite clearly, is you know is, is substantial here, and, and we can't really be talking about this stuff without discussing whether or not someone's actually active or not. But I mean, what is the relevance then of insulin sensitivity as it relates to this this concept of of fat oxidation, and um, and and I guess we should we should tie that in with with body composition and 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 health and and the guest performance. Yeah, I, I, yeah, um, yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, there was some some I guess early work um, done, which which almost uh, stimulated the idea for for this particular study, uh, which found that a, a lower fat oxidation uh, at rest. So in both the post-absorptive and both uh, postprandial, so before and after. Uh, eating um, was lower in those with uh, insulin resistance and, and also uh, type 2 diabetes compared with with normal individuals so that kind of made us think that you know this reduction in in skeletal uh, muscle fat oxidation and its links with insulin sensitivity uh, could this transfer uh, to exercise too and is this related is MFO uh, sorry is insulin sensitivity uh, related to MFO and is it related to 24-hour uh, fat oxidation? Um, so I guess the, the title of the paper really really gives that away um, in that the insulin sensitivity is associated with both of these. So typically if someone is uh, has a higher MFO and a higher 24-hour fat oxidation, then this will typically lead to uh, greater uh, insulin sensitivity. Uh, and this has been shown in, in our population uh, which is just normal, uh, normal weight, uh, otherwise healthy, healthy males too. Um, Gareth, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, I'd probably just add that I think um, there's a little bit of, you know, what's chicken and egg, what's cause and effect here. Um, but uh, the, the paper that Scott alluded to um, gets to the um, heart of one of the, I think, quite an interesting area, which is metabolic flexibility. Um, and, um, you know, if you are insulin resistant, um, 
then you are likely to be uh, resistant to normal flexibility in relation to maybe eating a high fat meal, your ability to switch on uh, fat oxidation is impaired or in response to a carbohydrate meal, your ability to switch on carbohydrate oxidation is impaired. And I think um, we've looked at things from how does fat oxidation relate to insulin sensitivity, but you could also look at it the other way. And, and certainly the work from uh, Goodpaster and Kelly, which is what um, Scott referred to, shows that um, the um, insulin resistant patients appear to be, uh, they have a high RQ, so they have a relatively high carbohydrate oxidation across the leg in the normal state, so that's a low fat oxidation. Um, and when you um, feed them, they uh, are resistant to the change. So they don't have a uh, the normal suppression of fat oxidation that you would get if you were to provide glucose and insulin. And so I think that inability to alter fat oxidation appropriately is also intrinsically linked with insulin resistance. And, and it's quite difficult, actually, to try and tease out whether it's fat oxidation is a cause of insulin resistance or, or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I mean, that's why I like to look at this as a <clears throat> sort of a, a front wheel and back wheel scenario on a bicycle. You know, one does not go without the other. And so to in life and the way that we've um, adapted to our environment and and the things that we, we have to do in life involves you know a combination of physical activity and appropriate eating and I think herein lies one of the issues is we constantly look at these things in isolation when in fact that's you know really not how we want to work in the same way that that front wheel and back wheel scenario is it is to be looked at one is not more important than the other they both work um, uh, you know they integrate so um, it, you know, I love the word metabolic flexibility. That is something I've done quite a bit of work in myself. Um, we've talked with various guests about the sort of pros and cons of, um, um, you know, improving metabolic efficiency, i.e. the idea of uh, optimizing fat oxidation. Uh, we've also talked about, of course, the problems with that um, at the expense of optimal carbohydrate oxidation, particularly as it relates to um, performance and the idea, the ideal scenario being someone who is wonderfully flexible, so that they can use both fuel supplies at the um, at the appropriate um, at appropriate times. And um, as you inferred there, you know, metabolic diseases such as diabetes being a particularly good example of metabolic inflexibility. Um, so I, I think health is clearly an important parameter here but so will be performance will be of interest um, to our listeners primarily um, so let's just quickly talk about that then guys you know how is this going to be of benefit from a performance perspective potentially yeah I mean I think um, it's for years this idea of you know the relevance of fat oxidation for endurance performance has been you know, of high interest, I think, for researchers and, and probably uh, practitioners. And um, I think some of what we're finding here, I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we're sort of focused on the health here, but the broader relevance, I think, is that, you know, it's starting to consider is, 
is the capacity to use fat during exercise going to be relevant perform for performance? And there's the usual argument that, um, well, if you can use more fat, you will spare your glycogen stores, and that will mean that you can perform endurance performance for longer. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, there's obviously been, and I think in previous podcasts this has probably been discussed, a number of attempts to try and then increase fat oxidation with dietary means, etc., um, to then improve performance. And actually, performance seems to be incredibly resilient to certain dietary interventions or at least high fat feeding as a, as a way to try and improve performance. Um, but I still think that, uh, you know, from a metabolic perspective, it does make sense that um, if you are able to spare carbohydrate stores by using fat store or fat oxidation as a fuel you will have more of that critical fuel available and it should be able to to help performance and whether that's measurable in a research experiment of course is a different question Um, but I think the metabolic basis is there and I always come back to a really nice study from um, uh, Ed Coyle in uh, 1988 um, where they took a group of endurance trained cyclists who all had the same vo2 max but they were separated essentially on the basis of their uh, lactate threshold so they had a high lactate threshold group and a low lactate threshold group although on an aerobic capacity basis they're exactly the same and they just simply rode them to exhaustion time to exhaustion at 70 percent vo2 max and um, those with a high lactate threshold uh, cycle for much longer than those with a low lactate threshold. And when they looked at fat oxidation, they looked at glycogen use. Well, those with the high lactate threshold had a higher fat oxidation. And during the early stages of exercise, they had a lower glycogen use as compared to those with a low fat oxidation. So the story sort of fits that, you know, if if you are metabolically fitter so you have a higher lactate threshold a higher capacity to use fat at higher intensities of exercise you will spare spare glycogen and use the fat and that should translate to a performance benefit so i think the the metabolic basis is there the trouble we've had is um developing the appropriate intervention um and study to be able to to really realize these these benefits and that being said you know i'm a i always describe myself as a carbohydrate guy at heart um and there is no substitute for um availability and accessibility of carbohydrate fuel for you know high intensity performance when you need to do those types of efforts absolutely and if, this, if i can just come yeah, in there as well sure. yeah. as a, a nice kind of practical point and, and message as well is that you know some of these studies may be done um, in the lab where we're looking at time to exhaustion um, but if we look at the kind of real world events such as the marathon or the half marathons etc and, and and perhaps more a more relevant task would be would be perhaps a time trial um, where and, and also if we look at things such as okay during a race uh, half marathon 10k uh, marathon, ultra marathon, etc. Um, there's often carbohydrate provision too, so we can source uh, carbohydrate um, exogenously and have exogenous carbohydrate oxidation during exercise too. So we can uh, top up our carbohydrate stores. 
Um, so it's very unlikely that elite level athletes will go the entire race um, having having fed no carbohydrate uh, and performed it in the fastest state. Um, it's also probably quite notable that a lot of the athletes exercise at, at, at high exercise intensities where there is perhaps minimal reliance on fat oxidation, particularly during the breakaway sprints. Um, and that's you know a period when undoubtedly carbohydrate oxidation and your ability to use carbohydrate during exercise is, is, is really quite critical. And if all the focus is placed upon increasing fat oxidation during exercise, and then we know that during these breakaway sprints or if we're mountain climbing, et cetera, on the bike, then that's when we really need to tap into our carbohydrate stores. But if we haven't done that during training, then our body may not respond to that and may, no, may not be able to tap into our carbohydrate stores as well. And, and that itself could, could be a critical performance factor too. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And that is the conclusion that uh, many of <clears throat> some of the, the more recent experts that I've had on, the likes of um, James Morton, uh, John Hawley and uh, Trent Stellingworth, we've had these discussions where really we need to stop talking about this stuff in isolation because um, we, we, you know, it, it's not, it's not a all, um, it's not everyone's in the in the camp of let's all go um, fat adapted and keto. Let's not all go into the it's carbs the whole way. Let's get smart. Let's talk about smart carb. Let's let's periodize our training and our nutrition interventions so that we are. Um, like you're saying here, you know, we, we, we got the best of all worlds. We're metabolically flexible. Um, we're well adapted um, uh, to um, make the most of optimal glycogen availability and accessibility, as Gareth just said. I love that. Um, there's this idea that I've observed, as you know, Scott, in, in my own practice, I've been seeing this interesting relationship between... Um, improving rates of fat oxidation but periodizing it appropriately with carbohydrate use um, for maximal um, metabolic flexibility but what we're seeing is there seems to be an improvement in um, you know the delay in the accumulation of, of lactate um, which I've definitely observed and uh, I think that that's a, that's a great angle there for uh, some future studies. Um, but let's let's just bring this back uh, quickly to the basic concept of your paper, which is this, you know, maximal fat oxidation during exercise is positively associated with 24-hour fat oxidation. Um, clearly, you know, it's important that, that whether someone's an athlete or a, or a regular person, and we're thinking about metabolic health at this point, that that they do need to be active regularly. I mean, we're not just talking about one or two workouts a week or are we no i mean i think um you know the the the, the effects of, of exercise really are as uh, a lot of the effects are related to your last exercise bout um and so you know frequent exercise is, is clearly important for um you know met metabolic health um but i think um the, the interesting thing and maybe i didn't point it out before is that of course we studied the, this context of health and obesity and things but the principles are the same for an athlete um you know if an athlete wants to change their body composition well it, it's the same fundamental principles and so it comes back to well 24-hour fat oxidation is equally important for for athletes looking at uh, composition changes as well yeah yeah so i i guess what i'm hearing there which 
hopefully is obvious, I think now, is, is that we all know that energy balance is important, but energy balance in the context of optimal fat oxidation is going to be better than just getting energy balance right, but not getting the sort of nutrient partitioning or energy partitioning side of it right, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, of course, there's never a simple answer to these things. Um, <laughs> so I have to say it's complicated. But typically, um, when you are in um, energy balance um, over time, and you are eating a you know constant diet, if you like, then your macronutrient balance will also be in balance. Mm. So your RQ respiratory quotient will equal um, the what we call the food quotient. So the ratio of uh, carbohydrate and fat oxidation that you would uh, measure if you just combusted your foods will equal what your body's actually consuming when you're in energy balance. And so I think on a long-term basis, um, actually, when you're in energy balance, you're in macronutrient balance. I think where some of the more interesting uh, uh, areas where this could be relevant is where there are... Uh, changes in either energy or macronutrient balance um, because uh, ultimate and, and particularly sustained changes or the ability to resist um, um, changes and so if we took the example of um, you know suddenly eating a, a high fat higher fat diet um, well your body is rather sluggish to respond to an increase in, in fat intake. So you'll have a period of time where you're consuming more fat than you're oxidizing. And if that is repeated over and over again, then you will start to accumulate body fat. And I think where the ability to utilize fat uh, as a fuel may become important, and what our data seems to suggest is is in the speed at which you can adapt to changes in, in dietary intake. And I think maybe that's where uh, the most relevance from this uh, this area of work might, might be. Yeah, that's certainly interesting. I, I know that when you sort of step back and look at the absolute sort of basics of what is, what is the most important thing that seems to affect um, body composition from a uh, from a, uh, a more generalized approach, you know, like obesity uh, and gaining regular healthy weight is consistency. Um, finding something that you can stick with on a regular basis seems to be particularly important. And maybe that is an issue is that people have such highly variable and inconsistent approaches to these things that, that if you're not particularly metabolically flexible, I guess that causes even more problems. Um, particularly in in the extremes that, that people tend to go through, you know, this sort of uh, uh, dieting and binging and all that sort of thing, and then perhaps that's 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 playing into a major issue here with this whole whole business of insulin sensitivity and, and resistance. Um, so, listen, um, Scott, perhaps you could just give us a quick sort of summary then of you know, the basic conclusion um, that your study here has uh, come up with, please. Yeah, so that's a great point, great question. Okay, so uh, essentially what we found is that, so we, we recruited a, a healthy uh, group of, of lean young males. And even in within this group of, of healthy 
young males, there was a large inter-individual variation in their capacity to oxidize fat during exercise. So then we looked at the MFO during exercise, and then we correlated this with their ability to oxidize fat over 24 hours. And we did that using a respiratory chamber. And what we found is that there was a positive association between the two. So that is those who are uh, high fat burners during exercise are typically high fat burners over 24 hours. Uh, and it's a correlative um, association. What we also uh, saw was that there was a positive association between uh, MFO and 24-hour fat oxidation with uh, the participants in <coughs> So again, um, this is a normal healthy weight population, but even within this population, uh, there is uh, a range in terms of their insulin sensitivity, and this does uh, link with their capacity to oxidize fat during exercise and also their 24-hour fat oxidation. Brilliant. So listen, um, this is the sort of thing that I think we could talk for hours about and there are so many different, as I said at the beginning, red herrings and I, there's a few things that I'd love to get back into and I, I know you're doing some more studies and um, as we continue to learn about this it would be great to have you guys back on to discuss this further. Um, but um, um, Scott, obviously uh, people can learn a bit more about you and what you're up to with regards to Guru Performance at guruperformance.com but um, if they want to learn a bit more about you know what you're doing um, with your PhD etc where, where, where can they learn more about that? Um, probably uh, probably through Twitter I would say yeah um, also the uh, the University of Birmingham School of Sport and Exercise and Sport Exercise and Rehabilitation Sciences uh, website too also has a has a bio on there for me as well I think that's great. And what's your what's your Twitter handle for those? Uh, it's at Scott Robinson eight. Perfect. And and Gareth, how can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Yeah, I mean, I think I guess similar. Um, you know, I I, uh, I have a, a website associated with our school um, school website um, um, publications. Obviously, that we um, we have a number of studies related to this area that we are when we get time trying to write up to get, get, get published. Um, so there'll be a few more studies coming out in this general area of fat oxidation. And uh, I also occasionally um, venture onto Twitter to uh, uh, share an opinion. Um, my Twitter handle is uh, at Gareth underscore Wallace. So people can follow me there as well. Wonderful. Well, look, it, it's been great uh, talking to you guys. I have to uh, bring this uh, podcast to an end, I'm afraid. Um, but um, I would uh, recommend the, uh, the listeners do check out that, that paper um, because it's on open access. There will be, and I still haven't done this, but I will do soon. Maybe I'll get one of my uh, uh, graduate students to do this for me, but um, I'm going to create... Uh, a page per episode very soon and I'll certainly put links to your papers uh, on this particular podcast uh, reference but um, uh, again it's been great and a privilege to have you both contribute to this podcast thank you um, uh, for folks that want to learn more about um, our podcast in general the We Do Science podcast just go to guruperformance.com you can uh, find our podcast on there um, if you want to um, learn more about uh, this stuff. You can do so obviously through uh, where these guys are based at the University of Birmingham. Uh, many fine uh, colleges and universities around the world in the UK, um, and of course 
Um, internationally and within London, you can study for the ISSN Postgraduate Diploma in Sports and Exercise Nutrition, which I run. Details at guruperformance.com. Um, and you can also um, study on to an MSc in Sports Nutrition with me also at Middlesex uh, University. Details at guruperformance.com. Um, I'd like to finally just say thank you to our sponsors of this podcast, which is Healthspan Elite. Um, to find out more about them and their range of informed sport accredited vitamins and supplements and ergogenic aids and such, just go to healthspanelite.co.uk. Um, and uh, I, of course, am Laurel Bannock. I look forward to bringing a podcast back to you all very soon.